0: Christmas is an amazing time of year with all the lights, sounds, and smells in the air. But it can also be a very difficult time emotionally, mentally, physically, and even spiritually. Hi, this is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at West Valley Christian Church. In this series, we will highlight some of the main cast that belong front and center at Christmas, hopefully reminding us of what is important and what is not. We hope you enjoy. What an awesome time of worship! Want to thank the worship band for that. Christmas was two days ago, but Christmas isn't over yet. We've been talking about the cast of Christmas. Hi, I'm Greg. I'm the missions pastor here at West Valley Christian Church. And over the last month, we've been talking about the cast of Christmas and how that they've impacted the world in our lives. Uh, A few weeks back, John talked about the prophets and how the prophets foretold the birth of Christ, and then. Rob brought the angels in and said the angels heralded the birth of Christ. And then last week, Rob talked about the Christ himself and how Christ was the Messiah and how he came as a savior to the world, but not as people were expecting. Um, I'm fortunate enough to talk about the Magi and the end of this tale of the, the of the birth of Christ. And the Magi are interesting people, and I think it's going to give us an interesting look. But let's start off with prayer. God, Nothing is ever said without you being the one who speaks through us. And Lord, that's what I pray for you to do here today. Proclaim your name through this service and may your name be glorified in our lives. Amen. Matthew tells us the story of the Magi, but honestly, it doesn't give a whole lot of information. As a matter of fact, uh, it's the only gospel they're in and outside of that, there isn't a whole lot of information about them anywhere. When I was growing up, I thought that they were three kings that visited Mary and Joseph at the manger. But that just came from nativity scenes and Christmas songs. Um, Nativity scenes are nice, but they're probably not the best place to learn about Christmas. Uh, A buddy of mine was telling me that when he was growing up, his mom made a huge nativity set every Christmas. It took over the entire uh, front room of their house. And he said that when she got done, the first thing he'd do is he'd sneak down in the middle of the night and he would take baby Jesus out and he would put in a Yoda figurine he had in the in the main chair. And he was waiting for his mom to find out. Um, you know, wake up in the morning and say, hmm, come to save the world, I have. Uh, okay, I probably have to apologize to uh, Frank Oz and George Lucas for my bad Yoda impersonation there. But I'm just going to say that historical representations sold by Hallmark aren't probably the best place for me to have learned about the nativity, the birth of Christ, and the magi. And, and in my defense, I was, I was only seven, so that, that, that probably explains that. But there are a lot of historical traditions and church traditions about the three kings. Um, the, some tell us that they knew about the Mosaic Law and the prophecies. As a matter of fact, some even go into detail to say that one of them was named Melchior. He was the oldest one. He had white hair and a white beard. He was the king of Arabia, and he brought gold as a gift for Jesus. Another one was named Balthazar. He was the king of Egypt. He was middle aged, with brown hair, and brought frankincense. Gaspar was the youngest. He was the king of Tarsus, had a goatee, and he brought myrrh. But the tradition goes on to say that these three men were so impacted by seeing the baby Jesus that they went back to their own countries renounced their kingdoms, sold all their possessions, gave the money to the poor, and went around for the rest of their lives telling people about Jesus. It goes so far as to say that they ran into the Apostle Thomas at a later point in life, were baptized by Thomas, were ordained as priests, and they went and told people about the gospel of Christ. Well, honestly speaking, that whole story really isn't much better than fiction. There's there's no historical background to it. Um, anything that even mentions the Magi that we have for church history doesn't come out until the 1500s, and it doesn't really span the test of history itself. So realistically, um, we we're kind of struggling to find out a whole lot about the Magi. I think that's where my real challenge comes into reading the story. Our desire to take a neat little story and pour it onto the gospel, um, I, I get it. It, it, it's neat it's clean it's simple but from what i have understand and from what i know um god jesus the bible rarely turn out to be neat clean and simple so i want to look at today what the bible actually does say and what the message is and why this story is actually there the story is in matthew 2 it starts with after jesus was born in bethlehem in judea during the king the, the time of king herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now the word magi is plural. Magus is the individual term in Greek. And what that actually just means is, well, well, it kind of means a lot. Because it's not really a Greek word. It's a word from other nations and cultures that have been kind of forced together to mean more than just wise man which is how it's translated, it actually kind of means something like keeper of secrets or keeper of sacred knowledge. Um, some scholars say that these people have been around for a really long time. And they date back to even things in the Old Testament. Uh, there was there, There's a guy in Numbers that's called a prophet, but um, he's seen to be a magi. His name's Balaam. It's in uh, Numbers 22. And he was called out by the king of Moab, uh, a man named Balak, who was concerned because the Jews were actually coming into the land of Moab, and he thought they were going to destroy his country. So what he wanted Balaam to do was to curse them, and he called him to do that. But God wouldn't let that happen. And the story gets kind of funny, so I want to go through it really quick. It's in Numbers 22. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road and into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was so angry he beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me three times? Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool out of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Now figure this out. Balaam is standing with his servants on the side, looking at a donkey who has just spoken to him, and he looks at the donkey and yells back at him, threatens to kill him, and says, you've made me look like a fool. I think Balaam was doing a pretty good job of that himself. But the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which which you have ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. So at the very least, we can see that the characters of the Magi that we see historically, A, they weren't Jews, they weren't part of the, of the cult of Yahweh, they weren't part of knowing who God was the same way that the, the, the Jewish people were, and they weren't necessarily nice people. Some think the Magi were priests in the Zoroastrian religion, and they held specific roles in that religion and had a lot to do with with lighting fires during their ceremonies and things like that. They were seekers of knowledge, including astronomy and mystical arts. They held high positions in kingdoms and taught princes how to be kings. They were scholars and scientists, and they dealt with divination and reading dreams and knowing the future. They also did other things that would later on be considered witchcraft. So the real question is, why would they be in the story of Christ's birth? Well, I kind of want to look at why Matthew might have done that, why he might have told him that, and I think there's some things we can see in the Magi that tell us why. When King Herod, this is Matthew 2, um, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the peoples, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen went in and rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, They returned to their country by another route. Well, first thing, there was probably more than three of them because it starts out by saying how these guys, just their presence in Jerusalem, really disturbed the people. The only time I know where three people would disturb a group of people is a Beastie Boys concert, but that's just my personal take. Um, They weren't greatly familiar with prophecy, and they didn't even really know where they were going. They were just going. And I think that kind of starts out the first thing that, that Matthew's trying to tell us. These people who didn't even know God were committed to know God. They were very committed. If you think about it, no matter where they came from, whether it was the, the northern end or the southern ends or of, the, uh, of the, the, the western world, of, um, or the eastern world in that case, I'm sorry, uh, of, that, of those countries, they traveled for hundreds of miles, if not over a thousand miles, to come and see jesus now travel at that time was on camel or even horseback or donkey and it would have taken months to get there that's being committed traveling months following a star not even sure where or how it's going to take you to a place where you can see a king i have to wonder sometimes do i have that kind of commitment John tells us the story of Jesus healing a man born blind. It's in John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, "It It was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in this world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, and applied it to the the mud to his eyes, and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. He left and washed and came back seeing. Here's a blind man who is desperate to see. He was a beggar. Because at that point in time, blind men couldn't do a whole lot more than that. They were, they, they were infants to the world. They had to be cared for by somebody else. Everything was dramatically harder for them because they couldn't see and didn't know what was going on. They, they sat on the side of the road and begged for money because that's all that they could do. And because of that, they were pitied by some and treated horribly by most. Can you imagine what this man heard when the disciples were walking by? The first thing they were asking is, hey, Jesus, was, was this man and his sin responsible for all the problems in his life and the pain he's gone through? Or was his parents responsible for the pain that he's gone through in his life? This is kind of a side note, but I absolutely love Jesus' response. His words kind of slap out at the disciples and say, listen up, dummies. This happened so that I can show you the power of God. These guys were walking around with the Son of God who was doing incredible miracles in front of them. And as they were walking around, they were more interested in how many angels could fit on the head of a pen. And Jesus was looking at him going, Think, I need you to be fully committed to me, not sit on the sidelines, not being a referee. No one cares about the win loss record of a referee. That's in the original Greek, by the way. It's harder to find, but it's in some Bibles. Anyway, so the first thing this blind man is thinking is great. More people are judging me. And then he could tell Jesus is walking toward him. And this blind man must have been thinking to himself, well, I, maybe I'm going to get some pennies. Or maybe I'm going to be struck. And then he heard it. He heard that sound of Jesus clearing the moisture from his mouth and he must have thought great i'm gonna be spit on again and jesus leans down and takes some mud that he makes with his own spit and he puts it up to the blind man's eyes and the blind man probably jerked away he probably didn't know what was happening he was shocked But somehow Jesus calmed him and said, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, honestly, this is weird. This is one of the weirdest miracles that Jesus performed. He healed people by a touch. He healed people by words. But here, he spit on the ground, made mud, wiped it on a blind man's eyes, and then told the blind man to go take a three-mile walk downhill outside the city and dive into a pool. And all I can think of is, he really wanted that man to be committed. He wanted that man to show his commitment to being better and not just being accepting the way he was. I think that's, that's what Jesus is asking of us too. Rob tells a story about going to Samoa and, and, and diving into uh, uh, some swimming area that's in a, in a cave And there's a place in the back of the cave that goes from one cave to another under some rocks. And I was there with him on that trip. And I was in the back in that cave. And it's dark in the back of the cave because the lights are, you know, sunlight's on the outside. And in the back, it's dark. But if you dig down under the water and you dive down to the bottom, it's pitch dark. And then you kind of feel around and you see that you feel this hole. And it was about three feet by about two feet. And, And I'm a big guy. And I, I, I swam down into there and I pulled myself into it, and it's a good ten to twelve feet long and I pulled myself in the first few feet are easy, but after that you're pulling yourself in and you realize you, you you're going by feel, you're going by touch you, you don't know what's going on, so you're pulling yourself through and as you pull yourself through, you can feel the desperation because you don't know what's going on now realistically um I look back on that and I think that was probably the stupidest thing I had ever done while I was in Samoa, swimming in a cave that day. But in, in, anyway, I chose to do it. This, this blind man, he didn't choose this. This was his everyday world. And what God was telling, what Christ was telling him was, I want you to be committed to change. Change. Because that's what you're going to need to be. And I have to wonder, are we committed? Am I committed? Are you committed to God that way? The next thing the Magi brought were gifts. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought their best. These are all very expensive things and have great value in that world. So they brought their best to Christ. And that made me think, am I giving my best to Christ? Jesus tells the story of a rich man going on a journey. And he says, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, he gave one bag. And each one of these servants took these bags of gold and did something with them. The uh, servant with five bags invested it and made five more. Servant with two bags, invested it and made two more. But the one with one bag took it and buried it. And when the rich man came back, the man who had five bags gave him the five and gave him five more. The man who had two bags gave him the two bags and gave him two more. The rich man said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servants. You have done great with a little bit I've given you. Come and enjoy much more. And then the man with one bag came back and gave him a dirty bag and said, Here, you're a man, and I'll quote this. He said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied to him, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew I had harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed.'" Well, then you should have at least put the money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The Bible refers to this man as a wicked and lazy servant who didn't handle his master's gifts well. Every time I read the story, I'm struck with the question, am I dealing with the gifts that God has given me, and am I dealing with them well? Malachi 1 goes into, us, goes into telling us about priests who used poor sacrifices to God. They took lame anim- animals and blind animals and they sacrificed those and they kept the good ones for themselves. God gets incredibly angry and, and calls out to them and says, when you offer blind sacrifices, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice a lame or diseased animal, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor." Would he be pleased with them? Would he accept them? And then he goes on to say he would rather they close the temple down and never sacrifice again, rather than continue to deal with bad sacrifices. And that just makes me think, am I offering God my best, or am I offering just what I want to give, what I want to put up with? I mean, for the priest, it was pretty easy. They could tell if an animal was sick. For us, sometimes we cut corners. We don't even think about it. A few years back, we had a uh, 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 garage sale, basically, to raise money for the underground here at the church. And, and uh, a lot of people were donating things so we could sell it at the garage sale so the underground could have money for their, their, their summer uh, trips. And uh, a man named Richard Quaylor and I went and took my truck, and we... Uh, went to different houses and picked things up and brought it back here at the to the church. And <laughs> one house we went to, the lady said, Hey, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming. And brought us into the back of the house and said, Here's the desk that I want to donate. And we walked over to it. And it was sitting outside. It had been outside for a very long time. And it was kind of beat up. And I first thought, Well, you know, who knows? Maybe someone will buy it for 10 bucks. And that's 10 bucks. It's worth the trip out here. And Richard and I went over to pick it up, and as we reached down to pick it up, we heard it buzzing. And we kind of stepped back, and the buzzing stopped. And I reached over to pick it up again, and we heard it buzzing. All of a sudden, a bee comes out from underneath it. And I stepped back and said, "Okay, let's take a look." <laughs> and looked underneath it, and there's a hole in the desk where bees had gone in and made a beehive on the inside. And there's an active, huge beehive on the inside of this desk. And I thought, you know, maybe that's not the best gift to bring to the church to sell. Um, so. I think that's what happens sometimes. You know, I'm sure that lady thought here I can kill two birds with one stone and get rid of a desk I don't want with bees in my backyard and maybe somebody else can use it. But is that really giving our best? Sometimes we think that bigger is better. There was a woman who lived in Georgia, and she was a devout woman who who worshipped God, read the Bible. She had four sons. She put them all through college, and she named them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all became doctors and lawyers and moved to New York. Well, they got together for Christmas one year, and they were kind of bragging to each other about how they had actually uh, done some great things for their mom that year. And Matthew started and said, I bought her a house in Georgia. It overlooks a great lake, has 25 rooms. It's beautiful, incredible, and it's a place she can live for the rest of her life. Well, Mark said, I heard about that, so I actually went there, sent a construction crew out. We built an addition on the house that's a theater. It's a 50-seat theater that has a Dolby sound system and and a a 75-foot screen that she can watch movies on. I gave her a 1,000 different movies to choose from. Well, um, Luke stepped in and said, well, I think I did one better than that. I bought her a tricked-out, completely fully loaded, top-of-the-line Cadillac Escalade so she, she can go anywhere she wants to in that. Well, John said, you guys gave her great gifts, but I think I even did one more. I found a preacher who had a parrot that could recite the entire Bible. All you'd have to do is say to the parrot, Isaiah 7, and it would quote to you Isaiah 7. So I bought it from the preacher, and it cost a fortune. I had to commit $100,000 a year for the next 20 years for the parrot, but I think it's worth it. So I sent that to my mom. Well, while they were eating dinner, they got a note from their mom in a Christmas card mail came they went and got it opened it up and said oh great there's a note and Matthew was reading it and Matthew saw that the first part was to him and and it said Matthew thank you for the home it's a nice effort but I'm a single mom living in a house with 25 rooms and I only live in one but I have to clean the rest of them so thank you it was a nice effort um the next part was to to Mark and said Mark thank you for the theater but um my eyes don't work very well anymore, I can't see and I don't hear very well, so um, I don't think I want to watch any movies, and I don't have friends that can, can, can fit in a 50-seat theater, so um, thank you for that, but nice effort, and then to Luke, she said, Luke, I, I appreciate the car, but I get my groceries delivered, and I don't go anywhere, because again, I, I can't see very well, so thank you, though, it was a nice effort. And then she wrote a note to John and said, John, you were my one son that that put thought into your gift, and I really do appreciate that. The chicken was delicious. The size of the gift doesn't matter. It's whether the gift is our best. Now, there are some people who can give big gifts because God has blessed them with a great deal. But it's not that. That doesn't make it the best. What makes it the best is God's putting in you to give to him. That's what makes it the best. And I just want to ask, are you giving your best to God? The last thing the Magi's did was they bowed down. Immediately upon seeing a baby Jesus, they knew it was him and they bowed down. In modern times, that doesn't mean anything to us. We don't bow. It's not part of our culture. But it was basically an acceptance of lordship. It was submission. These Magi were bowing down, submitting themselves to a baby. I wish we had that reverence today in a lot of ways, because we think of Christianity differently. We think of it as kind of a contract. You know, we're gonna do what God tells us to do, what, what we see the Bible tells us to do, and then we're just gonna expect that God pays us. He's gonna give us the what 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 the right amount is. And that's kind of the basis of the health and wealth gospel today. And I don't mean to to be rude, but that's 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 not right. That's garbage. That's not what the Bible says. Christianity's not a contract. We don't get executive authority to choose what we can do and what we can't do. It doesn't. It's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be we accept what God tells us to do and we do it. Because he's in control. He's our Lord. In Mark 10, Jesus was, was talking to a group of people one day and a young man walked up to him and it says in verse 17, As Jesus started on the way, on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher he declared all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It is far too easy in today's world to let other things cloud our way and to to become more important. It is far too easy to let things like money get in the way, but we do it with other things too. Family, time, politics, justice things that we think are more important than doing what god wants us to do but god's not asking for us to sign off on his work he's asking for us to obey it sometimes it's even pride i uh was took a group down to downtown la to feed the homeless a few years back and we had done it for years and we had a pretty good setup we, we, would, we would drive down, set the uh, two trucks up back to each other. We'd have food in one of them. We'd have clothes in another. People would get in line. It ran pretty effectively. And I would usually kind of step back, and i just kind of make sure things are going right and, and answer questions and funnel people toward the right lines and that kind of thing. And a man rode a bike up to me, and he saw that I was kind of in charge of what was going on. He looked at me, and he goes, you guys are doing a really good thing here. Do you mind if I set my bike here with you and I go over and get some food? I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he set the bike there, walked over and got some food, and then he got in the other line, and he got some socks and a blanket, and then came back and he said, "You know you guys are really doing a good thing, but you know it'd probably better if you actually did it this way. He started giving me advice, and I said, "Well, thank you, I appreciate that." and then he kept going and and I said, "Okay, thank you, I appreciate that and, and he seemed to get frustrated that I wasn't just jumping and changing things according to his 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 advice and and he kept on getting frustrated and i finally said sir i just got to ask you know what wh- why are you thinking this is the better way to do it And he said well i was a, i was a ceo of a fortune 500 company and i'm telling you I, I know what i'm talking about and i said well then i have to ask wh- why are you here what how did you become like like the rest of the people here and he looked at me and he was he was offended and He said i'm not like these people i got a bike and then he got on his bike and rode off. And to him, he was still a proud man because he had a bicycle and everybody else around didn't. We let so much in our lives get in the way between us and allowing lordship and allowing God to be Lord of our lives, to be Christ to be Lord of our lives. And, and we think that somehow by the way we run things that we're we're going we're gonna to defeat this, the uh, Satan in this world by not doing things wrong and And we're missing something. I'm going to tell you, Satan is not out to destroy you. He doesn't want destruction in your life. That takes way too much effort. Satan's not looking for destruction. He's looking for distraction. All he wants to do is slow you down. Because if he slows you down and he makes you more interested in the things in this world that get us caught up into problems like politics, social justice issues, uh, self-preservation, fear, If he gets us more caught up into those that we get distracted from our relationship with Christ, Satan wins. I'm not saying that stuff's not important. What I'm saying is the only way to understand how to respond to those things is through letting Christ be the Lord of our lives. The birth of Christ was a message of hope. The Jews saw it as a message of fear. Matthew told it to us in such a way that even a group of Gentile priests from another religion came and bowed down before a baby. The people the message was for tried to kill it. Matthew tells us this story because he wanted to highlight that this message of hope was for everyone. This is the last Sunday of 2020. It's been a tough year, and we just need to let it go. We can't make sense of it, but we can let it go. It's in the past. I mean, we need to press on and allow God to change the future for us. God has incredible things planned for us in 2021. Don't fear, don't expect. What we need to do is be committed. We need to bring God our best. And above all, we need to have Christ as Lord of our lives. God loves you. Remember, Lord, your tender mercies and your love. Thank you for listening. Remember, listening. Lord or you can join us live in one of our Sunday services. Have a great day.